Uh, this is Gary Powers, Jr. I'd highly recommend that you listen to Cold War Conversations. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Welcome to the Cold War Conversations 2018 Roundup and thank you to all our listeners and guests who've stuck with us and made the podcast what it is. If you're new or old to the podcast, I hope this episode will make you dip into episodes you might have missed or you thought were not your cup of tea. I'd like to especially thank those listeners who have left such positive reviews on iTunes and have contributed financially via Patreon or as one-off donations. If you haven't left a review yet, just head over to coldwarconversations.com and click on the Support the Podcast menu option. If you'd like to support us with a few quid, dollars or rubles, click on the Support the Podcast menu option as well at coldwarconversations.com. It's been quite a year for me. I started this project in March 2018 and had no idea where it would go. I have been astounded by the response and range of guests we've had on, and I've been privileged to speak to the son of a former Soviet premier. I've sat chatting over coffee in the kitchen of a former East German army officer in Liverpool and boarded a Soviet submarine in Kent. Now, that would make quite a bucket list on its own. Anyway, you don't want to listen to my ramblings. Here's a whistle-stop tour of Cold War Conversations 2018. Enjoy. The first episode we started with proper was with Michael K. Ferris, who told us about his life in Berlin as the child of Air Force personnel and how he subsequently joined the U.S. Air Force himself and worked in signals intelligence in the 1980s. Not the best sound quality I've ever had on the show, but I've learned a lot since then. Here is an excerpt from that interview. In 1960, he was assigned to West Berlin to the uh, Sixth Gun Twelve Security School. My mother and I were supposed to follow up quickly uh, to join him, but I think what happened was because of the political uh, tension over the U-2 crisis, they froze all military dependents from coming over. So my mother and I ended up being stuck in Pittsburgh for a year. And then once uh, President Kennedy became president, he eventually lifted the uh, freeze. And my mother and I showed up in West Berlin on August 10th, 1961. So, so I can say that I lived in Berlin for three entire days. And then, of course, what happened August 13th, everybody knows, the wall went up. Our next episode was with Craig McCracken, where we talked about the strange world of East German football with matches being rigged and that unforgettable result where East Germany beat West Germany in 1974. And uh, inf infamously, he is um, said to have walked into the dressing room at the end of the game where the, um, the Leipzig players were celebrating and said to said to them, enjoy the celebration because this is the last title you'll ever win. <laughs> and, and, and it was the last title that they'd ever win. And, and there's, there's certainly clear evidence of um, referee corruption. 
Our next episode features my good friend Shane Whaley, and uh, we talk about Berlin, espionage, and the GDR. And uh, anybody interested in the GDR, highly recommend Shane and Anchor's GDR Radio podcast, which was launched recently. But anyway, have a listen to me and Shane rambling on about the GDR. Fascinate, you know, fascinating stories. And it does beg the question of, you know, did they find them all? Or are there others out there that are, they have to be you know, nice. just gone to ground and are nice. happily mowing their lawns in Munster or Stuttgart? <laughs> yeah, no, that, that has to be. Your interest in East, because you've got a particular interest in um, East Germany. What, what started that? It's a curious story. Uh, so back in the 80s, I was a bit of a nerd as a kid, and I used to collect stamps. Um, and you used to send away a pound note. Remember those? And <laughs> A pound note, a lot of money then. You, yeah. Once a month, you'd send it off to this address, and you just get back a um, mixed bag of stamps from all around the world. And for some reason, this guy kept sending me most of the stamps I got was certainly Eastern Europe, and, and the majority of them were from the GDR. Um, so I had this collection and I thought I'm going to specialize in the GDR stamps. And I would go down to Swansea Library where I grew up because this was pre-Google, can you believe? And, um, you know, try and read up on Dresden or Leipzig or Karl Markstadt, all the places that were mentioned on a stamp or if a person was mentioned on a stamp. And that was my way of, you know, enjoying the hobby and learning some history. In episode six, I spoke with Dr. Richard Millington of Chester University about the little-known 1953 uprising in East Germany. It was a fascinating chat. You've got you've got Ria spreading the word. You've also got people who commute to East Berlin to work and then go home in the evening. You've got day trippers to East Berlin uh, going there for for a break and, and going home in the evening. Everybody's spreading the word about what they had seen in East Berlin. And then you've got Rias covering more or less the whole of East Germany. I know Dresden, Dresden mm-hmm. wasn't, couldn't receive it that well. But so you've got word spreading like that. So it really is not just an East Berlin uprising. It, it really, it was an East Germany uprising. Our next episode was an interview with David Young, author of a trilogy of East German crime books based around the female detective Karen Muller. The real life crime that the that is sort of like the centerpiece of, of Stasi Wolf, I found fascinating when I read the book. In fact, when I read the book, I hadn't realised it was a real. It was well, a real crime. It's, it's only now I've only I've taken part of it. So that's um, I mean the crossword puzzle murder was very specifically a boy of, um, I think, age seven or eight, went missing on the way to the cinema in the early 1980s. Um, and um, his body was found dumped by a, a, a railway line about a week later in a suitcase. Um, and the reason it got its name, the crossword puzzle murder, was that the best bit of evidence was this partially completed crossword uh, that in a newspaper that was dumped along with the body. Uh, and the, the handwriting was um, fairly unusual and typical of uh, an older woman. That's what the handwriting experts um, thought. Um, and so in real life, uh, 
they they set up what was um, and still is the biggest ever handwriting sampling exercise in the world, and they co- collected with the help of the Stasi, which was what what was interesting. They collected more than uh, half a million samples of handwriting uh, and did eventually crack the case. I then talked with Russell Phillips about Warsaw Pact armoured fighting vehicles, which sounds like a dry subject, but we had some fascinating conversations within our interview. This may be something of a tangent, but... Um... We like we like <laughs> tangents here, Russell, so go for it. I See, something that people don't necessarily think about is that the Soviet Union, of course, wasn't just... Yeah, you know, we, we have a tendency to refer to it as Russia sometimes, but it mm. wasn't just Russia. You know, there was all these other states making up the, the Soviet Union. So even within the Soviet army, you had a massive languages. And that caused real problems for communication within within units because they the Soviets didn't like make a, a Kyrgyz unit and a Georgian unit. They just mashed them all together. Oh. And a lot of the, the privates, you know, come from Kyrgyzstan or, or wherever wouldn't speak Russian. In our next episode, we moved to Czechoslovakia, where we spoke with journalist Mark Baker about his experiences in Czechoslovakia in the 1980s. And it never varied how it would happen. We would be chugging along. The train was practically empty. um, And there would be a a sultry-looking woman walking up and down the corridor, looking, obviously, for an empty compartment. Of course, all the compartments were basically empty. She would stop at my compartment, sort of knock on the door, pull open the compartment door and ask in very basic check if that seat was free. Of course, you know, I'm looking forward to a nice companion on the train. Why not? Of course, it's free. Sit down. Um, And then she would sort of take the seat directly opposite me, never any other seat in the compartment. We would lock eyes. She would flutter her eyebrows. And then at that point, she would say, "Um, I hear something funny in your accent. Are you uh, not Czech or are you English speaker by any chance? And, and when you say sultry, Mark, I think you're yes. probably saying quite good looking then. In episode 10, we went back to 1960s Soviet Union with a road trip with Jeremy Poynton, who was a 16 year old boy in 1968. And did you have much interaction with the locals? Did they want to talk well, to you? Insofar as most of us pupils only spoke very basic Russian, uh, what we could. Mm. Um, I will say that almost wherever we went, if you had to queue for anything, we were always ushered to the front of the queue, (laughs) uh, (laughs) which is very kind. Uh, And I do remember in Moscow myself uh, and a friend of mine, we went and had a couple of hours at the zoo and got on a bus and they, they wouldn't let us pay. Wow. And they realized that we were, were foreign. Yeah. So yeah. it was, one didn't feel I'm amongst the enemy, shall we say. In episode 11, we return to the UK to talk with Alastair McCann, who has preserved a Royal Observer Corps nuclear monitoring post as a museum in Northern Ireland. Here's an excerpt from our chat. When they got that phone call to say a bomb is on its way or, you know, Russia has started massing troops on the border. Mm. Would they have been able to pick up their bag from the front door, say goodbye to their wife and their kids, walk out that front door and drive to the post? 
and not for one second think that's probably the last time I'll ever see them. We then had a fascinating chat with music producer Mark Reeder about his time in Eastern Europe and setting up the first punk concert in East Berlin. Famous like avant-garde composer in, in, in Czechoslovakia, and he was charged seventy-seven signature, and he got and he got he got banned from playing. And his son helped to Jakob Topham write Revolver Review, this kind of dissident periodical that they release uh, yeah. once a month. And um, and we, this these were the guys who who had this gig, and I that went there with my friend Alistair. We went and played our gig there in Czechoslovakia. Not knowing, we, you know, we thought this kind of thing happened all the time, you know, you have no idea that no one had ever done this before, you know. Yeah. And, and I didn't know this until after I'd done the Total Nosen concert that this was actually the fact. That, yeah, I, I, you know, after we'd done the Total Nosen concert in East Berlin, mm. um, then, then it kind of manifested itself, you know, that this was the first time that anyone ever dared to do such a thing. In episode 13, we spoke with Michael Rafferty, who was one of the last US soldiers looking after Checkpoint Charlie at the fall of the wall. It's a fascinating story of 1980s Berlin. When and where did you hear about the fact that the the wall was open? Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Well, I was watching AFN, so I was just sitting there watching, watching TV when they said that the travel restrictions were being lifted. So I didn't really think anything of it. I called down to the checkpoint, Nate Brown, Staff Sergeant Brown, who was a senior uh, NCYC down there. Mm-hmm. I said, Nate, is there anything going on? He said, nope, it's pretty boring. And I said, okay, well, I'll be there to relieve you at 6 in the morning. <laughs> he said, okay, I'll see you then. Now it was Veterans Day. So we were expecting a whole ton of veterans to come up. It was a four-day weekend. So not just veterans, but soldiers coming up because they had a four-day weekend. So mm-hmm. we were expecting it to be busy anyways. When I, when I got there at 6 in the morning, I was briefed on the way down there that it was a mess. And I got to Nate, and I said, you told me nothing was going on. He just shrugged his shoulders and looked at me like I was crazy. He didn't even say any, anything to me. He said, it's all yours. We then returned to Czechoslovakia and one of the most iconic moments of the Cold War, the Prague Spring of 1968. We spoke with Lani Seilinger of Socialism Realized about this key event of the Cold War. But also, importantly, the Soviets really liked and trusted Dubček and they really believed that he was going to be like their man in Czechoslovakia because he had actually completed um, a significant part of his part of his education in the Soviet Union. Um, 
so they were really pleased with all of the support that Dubček was getting. And so Brezhnev just stepped out of the way and let the vote happen. Uh, and then Dubček became the first secretary in January of 1968. He didn't necessarily see his reforms as, uh, as like letting go of control, even letting go of like the Communist Party's control. In episode 15, we returned to East Germany, where we spoke to Sabina, who was 13 when the wall opened. When was the first time you went over to West Berlin with you? It sounds like your parents are very wary of, of uh, you know, doing anything during that yeah. period. Um, I think it was the end of November. Right. 1989. And um, I think partly it was also practicality because they sort of said, well, if we're going over there now, it's going to be absolutely heaving. We'll just wait until it's calmed yeah. down. A just avoid bit. the crowds. That sounds yeah, like yeah. that sounds like very practical advice. <laughs> yeah. And and what were your first impressions of of West Berlin? Um, we got we got up quite early and crossed um, went over the crossing at Warschauer Straße where that big bridge is. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so I think you my... went into Kreuzberg, which is probably not the most impressive. Um, yeah, it was uh, <laughs> kind of considered a more, I'd reckon at the time, a more sort of slummy area. Yeah. Not not slum, like as in, you know, no, the way but, we know but, it but now. not but as... Working, um, very working class, very, yeah. fairly poor. Yeah, not as glitzy as the Kudam or somewhere like that. Mm. And I think the first impression I had was how dirty it was, like how much disposable stuff like Coke cans and all kinds of rubbish was strewn around in the street that just we didn't have. In episode 16, we spoke with Mark Valley, the host of the Live Drop Espionage podcast. Mark served with the US Army as a combat engineer in West Germany and later with the Berlin Brigade. He provided a great eyewitness account of service in both locations. What, what were your first impressions of, of Berlin? Yeah, it was it was amazing. I've heard you talk on your show that you know it's surprising people say, "Oh, Berlin!" You, you just picture this dark city with people wearing trench coats, and you know, you, know, you think everything's black and white, like a Lacari novel. But I, what what really threw me when I first got there was just the the, the trees. I mean, these huge leafy deciduous trees everywhere, and, and the the parks. Um, and you know, the streets were wide, but they weren't. They weren't like Hitler wide. They were just, you know, busy. This was a this was a big, thriving, thriving city. In episode seventeen, we returned to Czechoslovakia to speak to Jan Kulich, who was a fifteen-year-old at the time of the Prague Spring, and went to the same school as Czech communist leader Alexander Dubček's son. I was very extrovert and basically the, this lecturer came and said, we were supposed to sign this. And I just kind of yelled in that class, I'm not going to fucking hell sign this rubbish. And she kind of looked at me and then uh, called me into her cabinet later and said, yeah, you should really sign it. But I didn't. <laughs> but, right. but they called me for, they called me for, a, uh, they called me, uh, the secret police called me for, a, uh, for an interrogation in connection with this Charter 77 thing. In episode 18, we returned back to the UK to talk about RAF Greenham Common, the iconic British nuclear base. 
We spoke with Jonathan Sayers, who is the director of Greenham Control Tower Limited, which is a preserved building on the site of the airbase. Our excerpt talks about the peace protests that were taking place outside the base in the 1980s. The CND, of course, was formed in 1958, really, I think. that It was really, uh, I think the threat, the fear, the fear of uh, a war and attack by the Soviet Union was growing, really, from the late 1970s into 1980, I suppose, was when it really began to kick off. It was in June of 1980 that the Ministry um, of Defence announced that the cruise missiles were becoming to Greenham and RF Molesworth. Um, and I think you know, a number of things at that time were happening as well nationally. I mean, the prote- uh, Protect and Survive booklets were issued in 1980. And it was it was within that kind of psychodrama, I suppose, that the... Uh, some people felt the threat of nuclear war. You know, the Soviet the Soviets were about to attack. Um, there was that kind of mentality and fear was gripping the nation, not just not just Britain, but similar things were happening in West Germany. In episode nineteen, we spoke with Francesca Actar about the Able Archer exercise and the nuclear war scare of nineteen eighty three. This is one of the most popular episodes that we have on the podcast. This excerpt talks about Ronald Reagan's reaction to the news that the Soviet Union really believed a nuclear attack was imminent. I think it definitely brought home to him um, the, the danger of, of you know, nuclear war. But I think if you, if you sort of read some of the, 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 the memoirs or what people said, um, former members of his um, administration, they sort of say Reagan was kind of going that way anyway. Um, perhaps the able archer thing brought it home and, and, and sped up um, the process more quickly, but it definitely had a very serious impact on him. And if you read his, in his diary, he sort of, um, although he doesn't, um, I believe he doesn't ever mention able archer by name, and that could be due to reasons of secrecy and security. But um, I believe that that was what he was referring to. He says that, you know, did the Russians really think that we were planning to attack them because that wasn't our intention? And he does seem um, genuinely shocked. Episode 20 saw us return to East Germany to speak with Anke Holst, the co-host of the GDR radio podcast. We spoke about her life as an East German teenager in Rostock in the 1980s. I was giving no warmth at all, and I run run around all of New Year's Eve with it because it just looked cool, and there was just no, no, no warmth. Well, so that's all. what you do when you're yeah, a teenager, exactly. You know. So I was, I was kind of trying to be cool. I yeah. think by the time I was fifteen, I was definitely trying to fit in and be cool. And stuff. Yeah. And so, were you told not to say anything to anybody else outside the family circle about the? the relatives in the West. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, well, with us, it was more like um, being told not to do things than rather, be, rather than being told not to say things. Our next episode was with Nigel Dunkley, MBE, and it was a real mixture of conversations. We spoke about Bricksmiths, a intelligence organisation that worked through the Cold War in East Germany, gathering intelligence on Soviet and Warsaw Pact troops. We also spoke about Nigel's time as the interpreter for Rudolf Hess, who was Hitler's deputy. 
Nigel is a former Royal Scots Dragoon Guard and he served in Berlin with a squadron of chieftain tanks tasked with defending the British sector. This excerpt is part of that conversation. You're right, it was actually uh, pretty open. But uh, funnily enough, we anticipated or somebody had figured out that one of the main places that they could come through would be to go straight through the Brandenburg Gate, uh, where the wall, of course, was a lot less threatening looking. Mm-hmm. I mean, 3.45 meters high, only 11 and a half feet high anyway, but it was reduced in height uh, and in solidity and offensive uh, depth down at the Brandenburg Gate. So that is um, conceivably one of the places where they might have actually come through. Yeah. Because it wouldn't have been the Russians coming through. It would have been the East German NVA, the National People's Army. They would have been coming through. Yeah. So we dashed straight down and literally just did a, like a, a, you know, a gunfight at the OK Corral face down look, you know, we tried to look mean. Yeah. Get the tanks down there without breaking down, which is some, not a mean feat <laughs> in achievement. And uh, go like, horror, we're here. Arr, yeah. And we're ready. Yeah. Should there be a problem? Episode 22 saw me take my first ride in a Trabant. I spoke with Alex Goff and Mark Malarkey of the UK-based Vortberg Trabant IFA Club. And there's a choke down here, so I'm going to sort of uh, ease the choke out a little bit and see if we can crank it again. Almost on the first play. Uh, one thing you find is that they, no two Trabants will ever sound the same. Like, uh, mine is very, very, very heavy with the, you know, the typical two-stroke ning, 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 ning noise. But then, like Alex's, is more of a purr than it is that traditional yeah. two-stroke noise. But you'll never find one that sounds the same. They all sing differently. Yeah, even if you've got two brand new engines, two new exhaust systems, yeah. they would sound completely yeah. and utterly different. Yeah. It's a very, very... Yeah unique thing with, with the Travis. You think it'd be similar, but no. Yeah. Right, we're off. We're moving now. Just negotiating a speed hump as we come out the car park here at a massive 10 miles an hour. Episode 23 saw us start our partnership with the Cold War Museum in the United States. We spoke with Gary Powers Jr., who recounted the story of his father, and the 1960 U-2 incident where Gary Powers' plane was shot down as it flew over Soviet airspace. Gary Powers was captured and convicted of espionage, and the story was immortalised in the recent Steven Spielberg film Bridge of Spies. You might as well tell us everything. We'll get it out of your American press anyways. So all of a sudden, for the next 30 day, uh, 90 days of interrogations, my dad does the following. He tells the full truth when he knows they can verify the information in the press. It helps to give him credibility. Yeah. He lies to him outright when he knows there's no way they can find out the answer. Names of pilots, number of missions, specifications about the equipment on board. Then he gives a part truth, a part lie, dances around the subject when he knows that they know something about the question they're asking, but not enough to contradict his answer, such as the altitude he was flying. Yeah. Dad always maintained that he was at the maximum altitude of 68,000 feet when he was shot down. And he did that to keep other pilots out of harm's way because they were flying higher 
yeah. and also to try to get a message back home to the CIA. Hey, guys, I'm not telling the full truth. In our next episode, we spoke with Mirko Krum about the nuclear bunker he is preserving in West Germany and the network of other nuclear bunkers that were building in West Germany during the Cold War. Some of the radiation levels were increasing. <clears throat> they could get the readings by telephone. There were also manned stations in bigger cities, <clears throat> which you could, I guess, call warning post. Um, they were mainly included in already built civil defense bunkers, so they didn't get like extra bunkers or anything, mm -hmm. but they could also measure radiation, measure other NBC threats, um, look at the skies and tell you if there's some um, enemy airplanes dropping bombs or whatever, because, of, of course, conventional warfare also had to be taken into account. In episode 25 and 26, I spoke with Dr. Sergei Khrushchev, the son of former Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. He recounted first-hand accounts of what life was like next to his father. Sergei was 20 when his father came to power, so had a real close knowledge of some of the decisions that were made during the Cuban Missile Crisis and also the Berlin Crisis. They are fascinating episodes and well worth a listen. You see, this telephone is a Kremlin telephone. If they will call this and will tell you that they're calling from the Stalin's secretary, say nothing, nothing. My father repeatedly told, after first shot, we will lose the control. In episodes 27 and 28, we had another double bill where we spoke with US pilot Buzz Carpenter about his time flying the SR-71 Blackbird spy plane, but also about his time in Vietnam and his work with the Skunk Works. The two-star head of Strategic Air Command's operations is there. Our deputy ambassador to the United Kingdom is there. The head of MI5 and MI6 is there. Uh, a number of uh, British military individuals are there. So we go through the briefing. Uh, they had no idea if we had a problem where we should land. They said, that's up to you to try to figure out. In September 2018, I visited the Soviet Threat Living History event at the Hack Green Secret Nuclear Bunker in deepest Cheshire in the UK. I recorded this interview He's with some friends here um, with a display around the Malayan emergency. So, Paul, can, what can you tell me about the Malayan emergency? Well, in essence, it's it's where the Cold War starts and really turns aggressive. Um, it starts with the murder of three rubber plantation owners in 1948 uh, in Malaya. This slowly escalates to a point where the where Malaya tells the British government, says, we need help. And it's the British Army assisting the Malay police force to bring order and put down a communist insurgency in the jungle. Episode 30 found me achieving an ambition of mine, which was to visit a UK nuclear monitoring post. I spent a fascinating morning with the former chief observer of the Rushton Spencer Royal Observer Corps nuclear monitoring post in Staffordshire. And it was great to get a first-hand account of what life was like in the Royal Observer Corps. What do you think you, you would do if you'd actually had to do it for real? If it was the real thing, what, 
what would you have done? On the face of it, you would hope you'd do what you were going to do, and that is man the post and do your job. Unfortunately, till that happened, you wouldn't really know. There were one or two that were on the post at the time, which I suspected may not have turned up. Others, Roger in particular, would definitely have been there. In October, I spoke with Dr Grace Huxford about her latest book about the Korean War experience in Britain. When prisoners of war were, were captured, most of them were marched north um, into China. A 22 American servicemen and one British serviceman are, are turned. Episodes 32 and 33 saw us speaking with Eileen Ford-Price. She was a British student in the GDR in the 1980s in Rostock. The second episode covered her return to the GDR, where she was a British teacher living and working in Berlin. She was approached by the Stasi. I was visited by a woman, and each time... You know, I was more and more certain that, you know, she was making some kind of approach. And she did eventually start asking me for information about political views of other other Western students. Our next episode saw us return to Berlin, but this time the west side of the wall. We spoke with Sammy, who is a native West Berliner, described growing up in the city during the 1970s and 80s. You did feel you were in the spy capital of the world, and you did feel you were very much at the centre of the Cold War. Episode 35 is entitled The Man Who Owns a Soviet Submarine. Now, I was very surprised to discover there was a Foxtrot-class Soviet submarine moored in the middle of the River Medway in Kent. So I contacted its owner and was delighted to be able to arrange a personal tour. I've been told by another Russian uh, officer we were lucky enough, by the look of it, to be left a very early satellite navigation system, which he believes in 1994 was still pretty much top secret and shouldn't have been left on board. Episode 36 saw another outside broadcast from Cold War Conversations where we teamed up again with Dr Richard Millington. We were at the Life in East Germany photography exhibition, which showed the works of Harold Hauswald, who documented everyday life in the GDR. It was a society like any other society, but also it was a society like no other society. It's, it's this inherent contradiction in East Germany that is, I think, that a lot of people find fascinating. The next episode saw us speaking with... Ancha Arnold, who is the author of The Girl Behind the Wall, describing an East German childhood. I just really wanted to put like a lot of color on this quote unquote black and white canvas that people always seem to have in their minds when they think about East Germany. Episode 38 was the first of two episodes with Neil Gussman, a US tank commander in West Germany during the Cold War. In this episode, he tells us about his initial training. It was very much stressed that we were going to engage an enemy that was moving fast and we were going to have to shoot accurately and keep shooting. In episode 39, we spoke with Torsten Belger, who trained as an artillery officer in the East German Army. Now, when I started the podcast, I had no idea I would be speaking to an East German army officer who lived less than 30 miles away from me. 
And I applied to become an officer, professional officer in the army, which meant 25 years minimum service. So when you signed up, you signed up for 25 years. And that was it. And there was no get, once you're sworn in, then there was no getting out of it. Episode 40 saw a joint operation between the GDR radio podcast and Cold War Conversations, where myself and Shane Whaley interviewed Peter Miller, an award-winning journalist who worked in East Berlin in the 1980s. And we were decanted out into a, a, a police station, which is a police station yard with them. Um, white tiles against the wall and concrete on, on the other side and they started pushing us up to one side and pushing lads with their arms and legs against the wall and running the truncheons up their inside legs this next episode saw us return to neil gusman who described his initial deployment in west germany as a u.s tank commander and we loaded the ammo which some of us had never done before so we thought wow this is real and then we we drove up to the border and when the fog burnt off, the Soviet tanks on the other side of the border were aimed at us. Episode 42 was our last episode of 2018, where we spoke with Gillian Cox, who was a United States student in East Germany on the cusp of its destruction. He has my passport in his hand. I am escorted to a red plastic bench. And I thought, I'm going to end up in the Stasi prison. And my crime is uh, purple hair. Well, that was 2018. If you like the podcast, please leave reviews on iTunes as it really helps us get guests and increases our profile. If you are on Facebook, do join our discussion group. There's loads of Cold War information and further discussions with our guests and listeners like you. Just search Cold War Conversations. We're also on Twitter at cold war pod thank you very much for listening and supporting the podcast it is really appreciated goodbye not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.